Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 16 in our series for 2021, and today's date is Friday, May the 21st. First, I'll be talking to Brian Westfall from global consultancy firm Gartner about how Australians and Australian companies are adjusting to working from home. And I'll be talking to economist Saul Leslake about the budget. But now, let's talk to Brian Westfall. Brian, I've read the Capterra survey. The question is, are employees working remotely more productive when they're being monitored? Uh, I think what we found is the answer is no. You know, we, we found during this COVID pandemic that you know, businesses were basically plunged into the deep end on remote work, so to speak. And it's, it's out of the box and they can't put it back in. Employees, they got a whiff of remote working and they love it. So we're not going to go back to what it was like before. So obviously businesses need to adjust. And part of that is the monitoring question. So when it, when it comes to productivity, what we found through our survey findings was that no, um, employees say monitoring has no effect on how productive um, they are during a given day. And I can go into more detail for the reasons why that is, if you would like, or please. we can move on. No, please do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the, the first problem is monitoring productivity is really difficult. If it's a very simple task. Say you're someone who assembles boxes and that's all you do all day is assemble boxes. You measure how many boxes they assembled and there's your productivity. Um, but the second you add any single wrinkle of complexity, they have meetings, uh, they do multiple tasks, they do more creative work. Um, then companies start using a proxy. They use something like how much time someone spent doing something. And just because someone spent more time doing something doesn't necessarily mean it add more value to the business, as anyone who's been in a meeting that's lasted too long will tell you. Um, so that's the first problem. And then the second problem is uh, it, it's, it creates an, air, uh, an aura of distrust. It says, you know, we're trying to monitor you. We need to make sure that you're productive and employees aren't going to feel trusted by their managers and their employer when that happens. Um, so for those two reasons... I think there's a very limited path to success with monitoring productivity. So that's not to say employee monitoring is completely useless. I think it does have its benefits, say for um, reducing harassment, theft, things of that nature. 
But if you're going to go the productivity route, it's just so difficult to do so. And I don't think it provides value in most instances. Employees generally love remote working. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, so what we found was um, 43% of Australian workers transitioned to working from home during COVID that were in like an, an office-like setting. Of those, 87% would like to continue working remotely at least a little bit when COVID is over. So that goes back to what I was saying before. The It's it's out of the box. Companies can't put it back in the box. They need to adapt some sort of remote work policy, have some flexibility there, or they're going to lose all those workers to those companies that do allow for that flexibility. So what sort of policies should they adopt? It's a good question. I mean, it's... So there's a few challenges, right? First, we mentioned employee monitoring. If you're going to monitor employees, the law obviously says that you have to be uh, transparent about it and say, you know, we're monitoring you for this reason and why. Uh, But you need to go further. You need to say, how does this benefit employees? How does this benefit the worker when you're monitoring them? I think a lot of companies skip that step. But if they do that and say, you know, we, you know, we're monitoring you for this reason, we think it will benefit you and your workplace in this way, then you show the results of that, then you're going to get more buy-in. Um, the second thing is burnout. So we found that remote employees do suffer more from burnout than in-office employees. And we can chalk that up to the blurring of uh, work-life balance lines. Employees that are working from home, they're don't know when to stop working. They're looking at emails on the weekends, that sort of thing. So I think any remote policy has to have some sort of protections in place for these workers to ensure they're not overworking, they're not extending themselves um, too much while they're working from home. And then the last thing is perks and benefits. So if you think about the last decade or so, you have these companies that have invested so much into their offices so that they're beautiful and they have, you know, free food and um, all these sorts of things. If you have a remote workforce that can't enjoy those perks, then they're going to be missing out. So I think a lot of companies right now are realizing we have to make sure our perks and our benefits are equitable with our remote workforce. So they're looking at more virtual benefits, whether it be, you know, virtual happy hours, which of course we're all sick of at this point (laughs) during COVID. Um, But even things like telemedicine, the idea of um, I can stay at home and have a video conference with a doctor instead of having to drive out um, to find someone, you know. I I would say that companies wouldn't be that well equipped for this new scenario of remote working. 
I don't think so. I think what a lot of companies did when COVID hit was they sent employees home and figured it out as they went. Um, but obviously we're realizing when this thing is over, employees are going to want to stay home to some extent. Um, so those flexible or you know makeshift remote work policies that we saw a lot of businesses implement last year, they need a lot of work to become permanent uh, that work long-term that are scalable with hiring. Um, and that's the real challenge for businesses right now. Right. Okay. And of course this would go to the whole issue of uh, when you're recruiting new people, you would hold, need a whole new recruitment policy as well. wouldn't you? Yeah, I think, but I think there's more benefits there than challenges, right? If you, if companies realize they are, you know, our employees are going to work from home. We're not sure if they're going to stay productive. We're not sure if they're going to, they're going to stay engaged. A lot of them realized, you know, these challenges were overblown. Uh, employees do stay productive at home. They are happy working from home. Um, so that's going to open the door for more companies to hire fully remote workers. And when you hire fully remote workers, that expands your network for talent considerably. All of a sudden, you don't have to just hire people within driving distance from your office. You can hire anyone around the country. You can hire anyone around the world. Um, so I think for recruiting, it, it's like the, the opportunities are limitless there. And of course, there's some challenges there in terms of recruiting talent in different areas, um, but the benefits outweigh the costs considerably. Now, uh, it's interesting that uh, your survey also found that one in five staff members, about 18%, said they're less productive at home. So that would suggest that when companies are bringing a, a policy, they can't have a one-size-fits-all approach. Would that be right? No. Yeah, I think that's correct. It has to be flexible um, because employees are different. They have different work-life situations. Some are working parents, um, some are by themselves, some prefer to, they get more done at night, some get more done in the morning. Um, some people rely more on collaboration and being around other people in an office. Some are more solo workers. So it's really on companies. You need to work with your managers. You need to work with your executives come up with a flexible policy, whether it's employees can work this many days at home during the week or during these hours. Um, they just have to be flexible with it. Cause as you said, you, you, you absolutely nailed it. it a one size fits all policy of you have to be at the office at this time, or you have to be at home at this time, isn't going to work for anyone. And the other issue too, is, I mean, your survey took into account uh, employees working remotely and employees working in cities, was there, was there, was it differences? Not that we saw. Um, between uh, urban, suburban, rural areas, there was a preference to working from home. There were some differences between in-office workers and remote employees in terms of where they have the preference for work-life balance, engagement, their relationship with their manager, and so on. But overall, it, we still found, regardless of region, people like working from home. Well, that's going to be all quite fascinating, isn't it? I mean, I mean, because it, it actually means it's going to put a lot on companies under this new environment that they're really going to have to, because as you said, it's out of the box and yeah. they're really going to have to adjust quite, quite drastically. Yeah, exactly. And what's the risk there? The risk there is your competitor that comes up with a better remote work policy than you. They're going to take your employees from you because employees are saying, oh, I'm why would I go back to working, you know, 40, 50 hours having to drive, um, you know, my commute every day when I can go over to this company and I'm allowed to stay at home. 
Um, I looked it up before our call just to see, you know, how bad it was. The average commute in Australia right now is four hours and 10 minutes a week. So think about it. If you're staying at home, that's four hours of work that you get back as an employee. And as an employer, that's four hours you're giving back to your employees. I don't know how you can take that away now and think employees aren't going to notice or they're not going to care. Well, that's going to be fascinating to watch. And uh, obviously companies are going to have a lot on their plate in, in this new environment because it will be part of their, will have to be part of their recruitment policy as well. Yes, absolutely. It, it will even change, you know, where companies are working. Why have the lease for that expensive office if you manage, you know, you're a small company, if you can manage having all of your employees work from home or work remotely, maybe you give up that lease, maybe you give up that cost. Um, so it's going to be an interesting year, uh, to say the least, to see how businesses adjust as we come out on the other side of this pandemic. Well, Brian, it's been fascinating talking to you and fascinating to see the Gatner Captera research. And thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you, Len. Thank you, thank you for having me. And now let's talk to economist Saul Eslake. Well, Saul, uh, what's your assessment of this very unusual budget? Well, it is an unusual budget, although it's probably not quite as unusual as last year's was, and it represents less of a U-turn in the government's underlying fiscal strategy than last year's did. But it does nonetheless confirm the departure that last year's budget made from the emphasis on eliminating deficits and paying down debt that had been the hallmark of Liberal National Coalition strategy since 1996, really. Um, and I think the Treasurer has in broad made the right choices in these circumstances. It would have been wrong, economically as well as politically, for the government to have embarked on the task of discretionary budget repair, merely because the unemployment rate was now lower than 6%, the threshold which the Treasurer specified ahead of last year's budget, but which we've managed to reach not in mid-2024 as Treasury forecast in last year's budget, but rather by March of 2021. Um, the economy has done better than expected, but we're still a long way away from where we want to be. And I think quite rightly, the government has joined the Reserve Bank in setting a more ambitious, a more challenging target for unemployment than they had previously been willing to sign up to. And because fiscal policy will now, at least for the next year or two, be pointing in the same direction and at the same target, as the Reserve Bank's monetary policy settings, I think we've actually got a much better chance of reaching them. Indeed, I think we might reach the target of 4.5% unemployment considerably earlier than the Reserve Bank or the government have specified, which appears to be sometime in 2024. I think we could actually get there by the end of next year, which may present some interesting policy dilemmas for the Reserve Bank in particular. But for the time being, at least, while at some point, this government or another government will have to make some politically challenging decisions about 
cutting spending or raising revenues, this wasn't the time to be doing it. And so I think the broad outline of the budget which the Treasurer has brought down this week is, is the right one. Now, I've got quibbles about some of the details, to be sure, but the broad thrust of the government's fiscal strategy, I think, is the right one for the time. There are certain assumptions it makes. For example, it assumes the population will be, the entire population will be vaccinated by the end of the year, uh, when only about 10% of the population has been vaccinated so far. And also, uh, you know, we're expecting business to invest 10% in the economy, which I haven't heard being done in a long time. Uh, yes, um, the first of those is quite explicitly an assumption. I would have preferred if the government had actually given us some indication of when they intend to open the borders. Um, but in a way that the government's underplaying, and I suspect is underappreciated by the population at large, keeping our borders closed, though I sometimes worry as a citizen about the morality of it, um, nonetheless is actually providing some important stimuli to the Australian economy. In the first place, because the population is growing at a much slower rate than it had been the pandemic. We don't need to create as many jobs each month in order to get the unemployment rate down as we did before the pandemic. In fact, to be more specific, when, as it was over the decade to March last year, the population was growing at an average monthly rate of just under 29,000. We needed to create more than 16,500 new jobs a month in order to get the unemployment rate to fall. In fact, over the decade to March 2020, we didn't do any better than that, as a result of which the unemployment rate basically marked time between 2009 and 2019. But in the last six months, the working age population has only grown at an average monthly rate of a bit under 9,000 a month which means that net new job creation at a rate of better than five and a half thousand a month will give you a fall in the unemployment rate. Now, you might say, but we're not getting the demand that migrants and foreign students and tourists bring that would help create jobs. And that's true. But the other aspect of our border closures that the government's downplayed, and I suspect has been underappreciated, is that while it's true, that we're missing out on the spending that foreign tourists and students and migrants would otherwise have been doing in Australia, that loss is more than offset by the additional spending that's being undertaken in Australia by Australians who aren't allowed to go overseas. You know, if the 12 months up to March last year is any guide, Australians would have spent almost $55 billion overseas in the past 12 months but they haven't been allowed to, so that spending has dropped to less than $1 billion. But that money hasn't disappeared. Australians appear to have been spending a very substantial proportion of it in their homes on things like you know, better equipment so that they can participate in Zoom conferences and the like, and uh, on their homes in the form of renovations, on car sales, which have been running at record levels for both new and used cars, on clothes and accessories, and to a more limited extent on domestic tourism. And the point is that that forced diversion of Australians' own spending from overseas to at home is more than offsetting the loss of spending by tourists students and migrants that aren't allowed into the country. And so 
we are actually getting enough demand in the broader economy to generate more than five and a half thousand new jobs a month, which is why the unemployment rate is falling more quickly than expected. And I think we could actually get to the four and a half percent target that the Reserve Bank and the government have now set for themselves much more quickly than 2024 at the earliest. And as I say, that potentially sets up an interesting dilemma for the Reserve Bank, because if we do actually get to a labour market that's sufficiently tight to generate the sort of increases in wages that will in turn push the consumer price inflation rate sustainably into the 2 to 3% target band, then the Reserve Bank will have to choose between doing what it ought to do in those circumstances, which is gradually withdraw from the record low interest rates that we now have, or keeping what many people rightly or wrongly will have interpreted as a promise not to raise interest rates before 2024, in which case, if they opt for that latter choice, they may find that they have to increase interest rates by more and more quickly when they start doing it than they would have had to do if they started doing it when their economic criteria had been met. Well, that raises an interesting question because the budget forecasts a debt level of one close to $1 trillion in 2024-25. And where does that leave the government if uh, interest rates go up? Well, it would lead it at face value to be paying a bit more in interest than uh, it's assuming at the moment. But there are two important caveats on that. One is that the government quite sensibly has been... Uh, lengthening the maturity of its debt portfolio, that is by when it needs to raise money to finance its deficit, it's been borrowing for longer periods than two or three years, much in the same way as ordinary Australians taking out mortgages have been more inclined to take them out at fixed rates for longer periods. So a rise in interest rates won't initially have the impact on the government's debt servicing costs that you might have thought without knowing that. The other point is that, as the Reserve Bank has been telling us, by the end of this year, the Reserve Bank will itself own about 30% of the stock of government debt outstanding. And although the government will have to pay interest on that debt to the Reserve Bank, the Reserve Bank hands it back every year in the form of the dividend on the profits it makes. So the cost to the government from rising interest rates will, in the near term and in the medium term, be quite manageable and lower as a proportion of Australia's national income than it has been for most of our history, except for that brief period in the early 2000s when the government was a net creditor rather than a net debtor. Nevertheless, uh, uh, the budget deficit will be uh, high for the next decade. I mean, do you expect any budget repair to come in? At some point it has to, but the point on which I applaud the treasurer's judgment is that that point is not now. You know, if the government were to embark on the task of discretionary budget repair now, it would be tantamount to raising taxes and or cutting spending by potentially significant amounts at a time when the unemployment rate is higher than anyone wants it to be. And when there are still some significant 
potential downside risks out there arising not only from the prospect of COVID getting away from us here at home in Australia, but also from the prospect of significant other parts of the world having renewed economic downturns because they haven't been able to control it in their own countries. So uh, to embark on the task of discretionary budget repair now would be repeating the sort of mistake that Europe and the United States made in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. And the US in particular is determined not to repeat that mistake. And we shouldn't want to make it either. There will come a time when this government or a future one does have to make those potentially politically challenging decisions. But that time is almost certainly for the government that we elect at the next election, not for this one. Well, Saul, it's like that'll be fascinating to watch. And thank you very much for your time. You're more than welcome. So what's happening in the news? Well, Amazon.com.inc is in discussions to acquire the nearly century-old Metro-Golden-Mavis movie studio in what would be its biggest push into entertainment yet, according to news reports. MGM, the storied Hollywood company behind the James Bond series, would help bolster Amazon Prime's streaming service, the information and variety set in separate reports. Amazon is weeks into negotiations to buy the studio for about US $9 billion, that's $11.5 billion Aussie, according to Variety. MGM has been seen as a takeover target for years, but was never able to close a sale. The company made a fresh push last year when it reportedly hired advisors to solicit office. In seeking a deal, MGM aims to capitalise on the proliferation of streaming services, which has increased demand for large backlogs of content. MGM traces its roots back to the 1920s merger of Marcus Lowe's Metro Films with a film company run by Hollywood legend Louis B. Mayer. While making great pictures like Dr. Zhivago and 2001 A Space Odyssey, MGM drifted in and out of financial distress in the second half of the 20th century. Over the decades, it was owned by Time Inc., CNN founder Ted Turner, and more than once by the late billionaire Kirk Kerkorian. There's been speculation before about Amazon acquiring entertainment companies. It was previously seen as a possible buyer of AMC Entertainment Holdings, Inc., the movie chain, with some investors confusing it with AMC Networks, Inc., the owner of cable channels. And the traditional owners of the Duke and Gorge Rock Shelters have demanded they be given a seat at the table in future planning of Rio Tinto's $1.5 billion iron ore mine in an effort to prevent the further destruction of the cultural heritage. The 46,000-year-old heritage-listed rock shelter was blown up by Rio Tinto one year ago against the stated wishes of the traditional owners, the Putu, Kunti, Kurama and Pinakura people. We want to ensure that we're around the table when it comes to making decisions about impact on our country, PKKP Aboriginal Corporation spokesman Birchall Hayes said, we're not going to let this happen again. Rio Tinto destroyed two rock shelters, dubbed Jukan 1 and Jukan 2, on 24th of May last year. Jukan 2 was dated at 46,000 years old and described in an archaeological report commissioned and paid for by Rio Tinto, but which its senior executives had not read, as one of the most senior archaeological sites in Australia. The company's former chief executive, Jean-Sébastien Jacques, told a public inquiry last August that the sites had been destroyed to access an additional $135 million worth of high-grade iron ore. Instead, it resulted in an international backlash against the company, a moratorium on any mining activity at the site, the resignation of three senior executives, including the CEO, the departure of two board members, including the chairman, and a Senate inquiry with plans to overhaul cultural heritage management laws Australia-wide. In a video interview released ahead of the anniversary of the blast, Hayes said the loss of the rock shelters was made more devastating by the knowledge that it could have been prevented. 
He said it was impossible to compensate for the loss. And Virgin Australia's chief executive has called for the country's borders to be reopened before the stated goal of mid-2022, saying it made long-term sense even if some people may die. Speaking at a business lunch in Brisbane on Monday, Jan Herdlika said she did not agree with the current stated reopening date of mid-2022 put forward by the federal government in last week's federal budget. Ms Herodlika said she believed with a viable vaccine in place for a large enough portion of Australia's population, the country needed to reopen its borders or risk being left behind by the rest of the world. The airline boss said as long as vaccination levels were high enough and vulnerable people were protected, the country should take the risk of fully opening again sooner than June 2022. COVID will be part of the community, will become sick with COVID and it won't put us in hospital and it won't put people into dire straits because we'll have a vaccine, Ms Herdlika said. Some people may die, but it will be way smaller than with the flu. We're forgetting the fact that we've learned how to live with lots of viruses and challenges over the years and we've got to learn how to live with this. And the Fair Work Commission has ruled that a delivery rider working for Deliveroo was an employee and unlawfully terminated, setting a landmark precedent for Australia's gig economy. After four years with Deliveroo, Brazilian national Diego Franco was removed from the app in April 2020 for slow deliveries. Deliveroo argued it could terminate Franco with just seven days' notice as he was an independent contractor. The FWC determined that Franco was actually an employee required to wear uniforms and use a system that organised shifts and measured performance. Deliveroo, which will appeal the decision, was ordered to reinstate Franco and compensate him for lost wages. This ruling has huge implications for gig workers in Australia, Transport Workers Union National Secretary Michael Caine said. An report by the International Energy Agency has determined investment in new fossil fuel projects must cease by the end of this year for the world's energy sector to reach net zero emissions by 2050. Under the plan, unabated coal power generation ends in advanced economies such as Australia by 2030. Sales of new petrol-fuelled cars end by 2035. And super funds are on track for their best annual return in close to a decade, as markets straddle record highs, with the March 2020 meltdown now a distant memory. The median growth fund grew 2.2% over April, bringing the return for the first 10 months of the financial year to 14.7%, according to research house Chant West. If super funds can hold on to that return for the next six weeks, it will be the highest annual return since financial year 2013, when growth funds surged 15.6% over the year. And the 3 million Australians who withdrew superannuation as part of the government's early access scheme have already lost $4.7 billion in investment returns, a report from the left-leaning McKell Institute says. The $36.4 billion withdrawn through the early access to your super scheme would now be worth $41.1 billion if it had continued to be invested in superannuation, estimates a report released by the Institute on Monday. The scheme, which ended on January the 1st, let people who had lost their jobs or had hours cut to withdraw as much as $20,000 from their super accounts in two $10,000 tranches. The average withdrawal for each tranche was $7,645. The policy led people to withdraw superannuation at the bottom of the market, meaning participants have missed out on the subsequent economic recovery, which has resulted in super fund indices increasing by 15% to 20%, the report said. Applications to withdraw superannuation opened on April the 20th last year, when the Australian stock market was trading more than 25% below its pre-pandemic peak. The people who sold at this time turned one of the most popular financial sayings on its head. They bought high and sold low, said the report. An individual who made the average withdrawal in both tranches had already foregone $2,420 in investment returns, the report says. 
and a compliance officer at Victoria's gambling regulator has told the Crown Resorts Royal Commission that the casino group lied to him while he tried to investigate how and why 19 of its staff were arrested in China in 2016. Timothy Bryant, a compliance officer at the Victorian Commission for Gambling and Liquor, Liquor Regulation, told the first day of Victoria's inquiry the James Packerback Group's Melbourne casino licence he was frustrated in his efforts to get to the bottom of the incident. Chinese police arrested 19 Crown employees in October 2016, of whom 16 were later jailed for illegally promoting gambling in the country, prompting an immediate investigation by VGGLR, while only producing a confidential final report in February this year. The Royal Commission heard the VGGLR ordered Crown to produce internal documents relevant to their arrests and interviewed senior Crown executives who denied there had been warning signs that staff were at risk in China ahead of the coordinated risk. But Mr Bryant said it became clear that was untrue as he obtained more documents from Crown, often only after they had been produced in a, for a shareholder class action stemming from the China arrest and in evidence last year's damning New South Wales Bergen inquiry into Crown. Meanwhile, the Royal Commission into Crown Resorts in Perth, which is running at the same time, it was revealed Western Australia's gaming watchdog opted for a wait-and-see approach after being handed information from Crown Resorts indicating that more than 50 individuals may have been involved in money laundering at the Perth Casino. Crown's disclosure that criminals may have been using the accounts of subsidiary Riverbank to launder money was contained in an information pack sent to the Gaming and Wagering Commission on December the 14th last year, according to evidence presented to the WA Royal Commission. Documents presented to the Royal Commission include a letter signed by the then Crown Chief Executive Ken Boughton with an annexure that referred to suspicious bank account activities being reported to Austrac. The annexure raised concerns about deposits being spaced out in sums with less than $10,000. The activity referred to as structuring and cuckoo smurfing is a form of money laundering, where large transactions are broken down into smaller deposits to avoid detection. And Crown Resorts has formally rejected Blackstone's takeover offer, but is still considering the Stars merger proposal the embattled gambling giant told the ASX on Monday morning. The James Packerback casino giant said the US private equity firm's revised offer of $12.35, up from the initial offer of $11.85, undervalued the company and was not in the best interests of shareholders. The Crown Board, led by Executive Chairman Helen Coonan, came to that view after taking considered feedback from shareholders and advice from financial and legal advisers. The Board also said it believed Blackstone faced significant uncertainty as to the timing and outcome of the regulatory approval processes. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to Workspace's founder and managing director, Jenny Foley, about how many businesses and offices are slowly bringing staff back to work, but still haven't figured out that they need to change staff behaviour at work. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest labour force and wages figures. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 